Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Peter as we continue our study, chapter 2 and verse 4. We'll be reading verses 4 through 10. In verse 4, Peter says these words, Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in Scripture Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God, and what do we know about the Word of God? Indeed, Lord, your Word stands. As we look today at the great and mighty Christ and the offerings that we will share with Him and partake of Him and to present to you, we ask you to bless us, to look, show us from your Word, to look intently into it and that we might rejoice. It's this prayer that we ask in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. If you're in the construction business, you've got your guys, right? I've got my guys. There's a couple of guys in Scripture, a couple of disciples that I really enjoy. They don't get much press, but when I read about them, they make me smile. It's Andrew and Philip. The reason they make me smile is because while they're with the Lord here on this earth and they get a little bit of press time in John, they're always bringing somebody to Jesus. In, in John chapter 6, you have, you know, Jesus going to feed the multitude and all of a sudden, voila, there's, there's uh, Andrew and he says, hey, here's a lad with five barley loaves and two small fish. And think about the lad as he watches Christ take what he brought and feed the multitude with them. It had to be an impact on the lad's life the rest of his days. In John chapter 12, we actually have a, a plaque here on the, on the, on the uh, podium that says these Greeks um, wanted to see Jesus after they saw him come into the triumphal entry. And so they went and found Philip and they said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus, which is right here on this plaque. And so Philip kind of indicates to us that there's this dynamic duo of him 
and Andrew because he goes and finds Andrew and then together they go and find Christ. And then in, in John chapter 1, we learn that Andrew, who was a disciple of John the Baptist, is standing there when John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And so he follows Christ. Follow, Christ sees him follow him and says, What do you want? Andrew says, Where do you live? Where do you stay? Jesus says, Come and see. And so after spending the night with Jesus in the morning, uh, he gets up and the Bible tells us first he finds his own brother Simon and he said to him, we have found the Messiah. And he brought Simon to Jesus. And at that time, Jesus does something that he does with nobody else during his ministry here on earth. He changes Simon's name to Peter, Petros. He actually says Cephas is Aramaic, which translated in the Greek is Petros, the rock. And Peter had to think about that as he is a Jew himself and he thinks he probably quickly goes to the Old Testament and realizes that God had changed a few people's names during the course of time. Remember Sarai and Abram's name were changed to Sarah and Abraham as they became the patriarchs of the nations. And then he takes Jacob and changes his name to Israel as he becomes the patriot of the Israel nation. And so as Peter commences through this ministry through Christ, maybe at this moment he doesn't really appreciate who Christ is, yet his antenna must have really gone up. And I could think that as Christ taught and he became aware of more and more of who Christ is, and there was a teaching on stone or rock, he would be the expert. He would be listening because he's not quite sure what this name change means to him. In Matthew 16, I don't know if it cleared anything up to him other than the fact we become very aware that Peter is aware of who Christ is. Jesus wants to know who the world says he is. And then he hears the response of the disciples, but he says, but who do you say that I am? And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, the son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus, the Christ. Now the early church relied heavily on this apostolic connection as they battled error and they battled heresy and they tried to determine what indeed was the canon. It was, they were always looking for this apostolic connection. The writings of the apostles, the true writings, not forgeries. Those who knew the apostles and could clearly bring forth the teachings of Christ. What Christ had taught on earth would, would come to form the canon. 
And they struggled on things that we take so for granted today. Who was Jesus? How could, if Jesus was fully God, how could that not just overtake his fully man? And they weighed those things together and suffered through them. And that apostolic connection was very important. They dealt um, with church practice, baptism, communion, worship itself. All of those things they dealt with and they looked for that apostolic connection. And church order, church leadership, they looked for and desired this connection with the apostles. But something along the way went wrong. And we become fully aware of it in the Reformation. But something along the way, the Roman Catholic Church's interpretation of Matthew 16 uh, got messed up. Hendersick says in his commentary concerning the Catholic view this, the Catholic Church teaches that our Lord conferred on St. Peter the first place of honor and the jurisdiction in the government of his whole church. And that same authority has always resided in popes or bishops of Rome, as communion with the see of Rome, where Peter rules in the person of his successor. And what we're looking at today is we're looking at a commentary of the man who would be the expert on rock on foundation, on stone. He would be the expert of the teaching of Christ as from day one he was renamed from Simon to Peter. He walked with Christ all those days and up until the point of his own persecution unto death thought about those words and searched the scriptures of the Old Testament to try to figure out what indeed was his call and mission in this life due to that renaming. I think you will see that if Peter is right from the commentary we have in our hands today, then Rome is wrong. The second thing that's exciting about our passage today is that it's sort of a hinge passage. What we've seen up until today is Peter dealing sort of individually with these people. You are elect, you are born by the blood and the spirit, and you should um, love the brotherhood. And it's this internal and individual look. Today we're going to take a more corporate and a wider look as we think today as more of the church as a whole, not just, just, just this church here, but the church in the world. Okay, And then next week, we're going to see the title of Sojourners and Pilgrims, but it's going to be to how do we appear in the heathen world, in the pagan world, as we figure out how to submit to rule and to government. He's going to talk to wives and to husbands and to young people and to elders, and a good part of it is going to be how to suffer in this world over here. So two exciting things about our passage today. As it excited me as a builder, as a contractor, to be able to see this theme of, of construction. You were being built up into a house. And so as I, you know, the great theologian that I am, I'm saying, Lord, what's the key verse? And I said, if I was looking for a key verse, I'd look for a verse that 
you know, was the cornerstone of the passage. And not just the cornerstone, but the chief cornerstone. So after 12, 13 hours of study, lo and behold, I came upon verse 6. Therefore it is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. And that's a reference to Isaiah 28, verse 16, which says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, whoever believes will not act hastily. Now, verse 4 gives us all the players. God, stone, you, those who reject it, the men who are in rejection of it. It gives us all the players and it helps us translate into verse 16 that this stone is indeed Christ. Stone. Peter helps us along the way. If you want to see his intent to take the eyes off of him, he uses, and your Bibles are true to this, he uses lifros for the word stone, not petra for the word stone or rock. Throughout the whole passage, it's lithros, stone. Only once does he use the word petra, and that's a stone of offense. He is clear in his language about who is the main thing. And your Bibles are true to that. Always interpreting stone for lithros, one time rock. We learn that this stone is a special kind of stone. Lithros does have some definition. It's more like a stone out of the ground, like a headstone, that would be a lithros. A cornerstone would be a lithros. Where a, uh, a petra stone, a rock, would be more like a mass of rock. But we learn that this stone is special because he gives a definition of it as a corner stone. Today, when you walk into a building, we kind of use cornerstone as a little different. It's more like a ceremonial stone. If you happen To see a cornerstone in a building, it's not doing much, just adding ceremony and a little beauty. It's going to tell you when the building was built, who paid for it, the architect. Every now and then they put the builder in. They should always have the builder in. (laughs) But um, it's just sort of an announcement there. But this stone in these days, you've seen the ruins in Greek, and you see these foundation stones that survive. And what's a unique point about the cornerstone is it defines the boundaries. We're coming to here, we're going to turn here. We're going to here, and then we're going to turn here. If you're lucky, it'll turn here and here, and you're done. But the cornerstone defines the boundaries. Um, It does account for the alignment. It's only going to come to this point here and not go further toward the street. And it's going to be counted on for its strength and its beauty, these corner stones. But wait, he adds another definition. This is the chief corner stone. 
It's the most prominent of all the cornerstones that the builder has to select from. He has chosen this one. It is the rarity of the rare. It is going to be put in the most prominent position. It is the most beautiful of all. As you can see, it will be tested. He's counting on it to be the strongest of all. It's best in all the factors that he could be looking for is this chief cornerstone. Peter says it's elect. Isaiah says it's tried. Peter says it's precious. What man has spurned, God has valued. And this preciousness is to go along with the preciousness that he brought out in chapter 1, verse 19. The precious lamb without spot. The blood was precious. And in the same manner, so is this stone. It's precious because of its scarcity. Nothing in this world matches it. It is all-powerful. There is nothing in this world that can compare to this stone. And that indeed gives its preciousness. We're going to read some of Peter's sermons or look into them today. He says in his Acts 4 sermon, There is no other name under heaven that we can be saved. It's precious. And it will not shame those who believe in it. The Isaiah passage says it's a sure foundation. It will not confound. It will not dishonor you if you believe in it. The word there in its root has something about blushing. You will not be embarrassed. Your face will not turn red because of this stone. Interestingly enough, he also gives us the location. In, in Peter's day, the big churches really were Antioch and Jerusalem. Rome was sort of kind of the startup, okay? And Peter knows nothing about what will be the sea of Rome and what men will create of him and through this Roman Catholic church and the Pope. He knows nothing of that. But by the agency of God, he declares that this stone is not in Rome. It is in a higher city. It is in Zion. In the Old Testament, David overcame a stronghold of the Jebusites. And that became Zion, the city of David, Jerusalem. As the Old Testament progressed, Zion became the western ridge of the city. In Psalms, though, psalmist uh, describes Zion as a place where salvation comes from, Psalm 53. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when God brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. The psalmist also says that Zion is God's dwelling place. In Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. This cornerstone is with God. It is at His right hand. And we can look forward again to seeing it. As in Hebrews, he says, You come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable 
company of angels, what a glorious day it will be when we see it again. And Peter's talking about it being revealed to you. And we look forward to the blessings of that day. Last Greek word we're going to look at. But how did it get there? The text tells us it was laid there by God. This word is um, tithum, tithama. And we've seen it before. Last week when Ryan talked to us about laying aside all malice and hypocrisy and envy and evil speaking. It's the sinners that we are, we can't easily do that. It has to be an appointed laying aside, a purposeful Laying aside, this word here is the same Greek word with just a little prefix before it, apo, from you. Lay it from you. Here we learn that this stone is laid by God in Zion at his right hand. And the word will appear again when he talks about those who do not believe. And he will say, I think correctly, it's interpreted at the end of verse 8, to which they were appointed. And appointed really is the stronger word. Christ is appointed to Zion, having performed the works of God. You must appoint those things, malice, envy, evil speaking, away from you. And these people are appointed by God in their rejection and disbelief of him. And finally, we learn that he is as a living stone. A living stone that goes with the living hope, the being revealed, the being raised from the dead, the enduring and strong stone which is forever that we've learned from Peter chapter 1. In Peter's first sermon at Pentecost, remember he's the expert on the rock We hear this, God is raised up, having loosened the pains of death, because it was not possible that she should be held by it. It's a a living stone. It was crucified indeed, but released from the pains of death and alive again. In Acts chapter 2, as he continues his Pentecost sermon, he says, Men, let me speak freely with you. And let's talk about our patriarch David, who he died. His tomb is right over there. We see it. But David foresaw this day, and he declared that he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. And he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, and that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses, and therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured this out which you now see and hear. Christ has performed what he was destined to perform. God has him there with him in Zion, and has given us Witnesses of the apostles and the Holy Spirit to testify of that truth. A stone is not a new word for God. The first time it shows up in the Old Testament is when Jacob is blessing his 
12, 13, 14 sons, right? And when he gets to Joseph, he says this, Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him, but his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Two times the stone appears to the thirsty Israelites as they march through the desert. Paul has a very interesting and a remarkable statement at these occurrences. And he said they all drank from the same spiritual drink. They all drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. In Deuteronomy, he is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of truth. Without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Psalms, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, and whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Isaiah, do not fear, do not be afraid. I have, have I not told you from that time and declare it, you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there's no other rock. I know not one. Then we find out from Peter that this rock has an A.K.A., two names. It's also called a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. In Peter 7 and 8, he says, Therefore to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word which they were appointed. Verse 4, rejected by men. These are references to, remember Peter's pulling from everywhere, Psalm 110, Isaiah 8, Isaiah 28. But Peter here is pulling from Psalm 118, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Peter testifies to this verse. Christ actually used Psalm 118 to also prophesy to how he would be treated and rejected. Christ says this in Matthew 21. This is after the parable of the evil vine dressers who kill the servants of the landowner, then kill his son. And Christ says this, Have you not read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls it will grind him to powder. Peter bears witness of this rejection in his third sermon. Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. 
He's talking about the man that God just healed and made walk through him. This is the stone which is rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given him by men which, which we may be saved. And Peter again in the second sermon testifies to the denial the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate, when Pilate was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, and of which we are witnesses." It's also a reference to Isaiah 8, which completes the trilogy. Isaiah 8 says this, He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And among them they shall stumble and they shall fall and be broken and be snared and be taken Paul teaches on this himself when he talks about the Jews, uh, Israel, uh, being confused and trying to pursue righteousness by the law and not, not by faith. And why? Because they did not seek it. Why did they not obtain righteousness? Because they did not seek it by faith. But as it were, they, they looked for it by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone, says Paul. And he quotes Isaiah. The builders have rejected it, says Peter. Both houses of Israel have rejected it, says Isaiah. They are disobedient to the word, says Peter. Paul says they did not seek it by faith, but by works of the law. They stumble, says Peter. Isaiah says they fall, they're broken. They're snared and they're taken. And they're appointed, as we've already seen, and laid in that disobedience. They're a stone of stump stumbling, a trap and a snare. The rock of offense, the only time Peter uses Petra. And yet, it is still the corner stone the chief corner stone. Thirdly, we see passages about us. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In verse 4, coming to him as to a living stone. We are living stones together, being laid together to build this spiritual house. It's a construction project going on before our eyes, a spiritual construction project in which we should come to the living stone, come to Christ as if he was a living stone. Babies are held in their mother's arms and they drink milk. But as they grow, they released from the arms and they become mobile. Uh-oh. 
Peter says, come to Christ when you've got your legs. And the word is to keep coming to Christ, continuously coming to Christ, individually and one after another. We're being built up into this spiritual house as we come to Christ as to a living stone. Here's one for you. How do you come to a living stone? Well, again, being the great theologian, I decided that you come to a living stone not like you come to a dead stone. You come to it differently. A dead stone is this from Moses who's talking to the people when they come into the land. He tells them this, And there you will serve gods, the works of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. There's no hearing in a dead stone, no seeing, no tasting, no speaking. They're dead. It's just a stone. But Hezekiah gives us how the attitude and the way in which we approach a living stone. We approach a living stone with expectation. The living stone, Hezekiah is surrounded by the Assyrian army. Their representative has come into the city and he has talked smack about God and about Hezekiah himself. And what does Hezekiah do? He goes into the temple and he prays to the Lord. Hear this prayer. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear all the words of Sin-Nasherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of the Assyria have laid waste all the nations of the lands, and they have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands of wood and stone. Therefore, the Assyrians destroyed them. Now, therefore, O Lord, our God, save us from his hands, that the kingdoms of all the earth may know that you are the Lord and you alone. And that night, God mysteriously slays 185,000 Assyrians who they find encamped around them dead in the morning. And you are being built into a spiritual house. A spiritual house is the dwelling place of God in spirit. Paul teaches us this. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And you have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. A holy priesthood, a part of a holy priesthood who is led by the great high priest Jesus. And why? In order to offer spiritual sacrifices. What are spiritual sacrifices? Well, Paul says 
in Philippians that he is being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. It's a total giving it up on the field is a spiritual sacrifice. A spiritual sacrifice, Paul says, indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. A spiritual sacrifice, can you be giving up money and things, just like was sent to Paul? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and in the will of God. Peter's words would be, gird up your mind. It's a sacrifice to the Lord. Hebrews, therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Jesus, we can't leave the passage without Jesus' words to us reminding us, whoever hears these words of mine and does them, I like him to a man who builds his house upon the rock. When the winds come and the floods came and they beat on that house, it will not fall for it is founded on the rock. But a foolish man, when he hears these words of mine and does not do them, he will be like a man who builds his house upon the sand. And when the winds come and the waves blow and the floods come and the rain descends, it fell and great was his fall. You are chosen for an appointed mission. In 9 and 10, you are a chosen generation, a corporate priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. You were once not a people, but now you're the people of God. You have obtained mercy, although you once had no mercy. These are a corporate use a corporate thought as Peter paints for us who we are corporately with one another as we are built and stacked upon one another as holy stones building a holy temple. In the book of Hosea, Hosea the prophet, Hosea is a representation in his book and in his sign act in a way of being God. And he's told to marry a lady named Gomer. And Gomer represents us. The thing that made it hard to decide whether the critics have a hard time because how could God have commanded a prophet so holy and pure to marry a prostitute, Gomer? Yet that's not the question really in the book at all, is it? It's how can God join himself or join himself with us? We're the prostitutes, and yet God joins with us. Well, they do get married, and she enters into the marriage as a harlot and a prostitute, but in the marriage she leaves him again. She puts her dependence in her lover. She wants them to support her. She has more confidence in them than Hosea himself. 
So she goes from being a prostitute and a harlot to an adulteress and a covenant breaker and a sinner of sinners. And yet God tells Hosea, go find her and love her again. They have three children together. The names for that children, the first one is Jezreel, which says God plants and sows. In our text today, I think about that of God lays, God appoints, God plants. The second was a daughter by the name of No Mercy. I will have no mercy anymore. And the third is Not My People. You're not my people. In our passage, though, we were not a people, and we are. We had no mercy, but we do. And hear these words from Hosea as God describes how this union will be linked again. He says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. And I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley Achor as a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. What a beautiful picture of us and how God has brought us back to him to proclaim his glorious and wonderful praise. That's the purpose, to offer the spiritual sacrifices approved and pleasing to him because you have been called out of this darkness into this marvelous light. Celebrate it, advertise it, announce it. That's what we're called to do. Peter has surely set the book right on Rome, has he not? Yet where is Peter proclaiming his own praise and his own point to self? There is none of that, and he would have none of that. It is all about the chief cornerstone, which is higher than all the apostles and all men and all gods. In Ephesians 5, it says, You were once darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Four takeaways. How do we know that if we believe in Jesus, we will not be shamed? Well, Jesus was chosen by God for a mission here on this earth. He performed that mission in such a way that Peter proclaims to, her, to us that God has deemed him precious. God has given him full value and full honor. And God raised him from the dead. God laid him at his right hand in Zion. And just as he performed all the requirements that his father asked him to do, so he will supply for you all your expectations and hopes. Come to him as a living stone. Don't miss, second takeaway, don't miss this. 
the gospel is presented by Peter here in his letter is chock full of the sovereignty of God in salvation. It is unapologetically a God-centered gospel, not a man-centered gospel. By that, he has repealed Rome in and of itself. But it does not stop Peter from exhorting you as believers to do certain things. It does not stop Peter to telling us to go into this world and proclaim the praises of the Lord. There is no fear in this. Those of us that hold to the sovereignty of God's salvation are quite comfortable with that. But if you're there in the chair this morning and you're teetering from a man-centered to a God-centered, I would encourage you to take the step. Be God-centered. It is wonderful there. It is precious there. It, I would encourage you to be there. I would also warn you, though, if you're not there, be careful because you may be tripping over the stone. Third takeaway. I want you to fully see the importance that Peter puts on the church, the corporate church, and make your commitment to that church. There are, Peter's not calling for a Rambo for Christ. It's a, it's a cooperative thing in which we appear precious to the word, world. Individually, not so much, but some. Right? You may think it's the easiest and most efficient way to proclaim praises and to do spiritual sacrifices alone, like Rambo. But God's way, the way Peter has prescribed it to us, as with one another. And lastly, I have to smile again. These guys make me grin. But I, want, I do want to finish telling you about Philip. I told you about Andrew. Philip is called by Christ right after Andrew. They're from the same town. And he went immediately and found Nathaniel. And when he finds Nathaniel, he says to Nathaniel, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel's response to that is this. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip says, come and see. It's a gospel message. That's what you're called to do. Come and see Christ. But Christ is in Zion. His spirit is here. Peter's telling us if you want to see Christ, he's here. He's in his word. Gird up your minds to be able to show them Christ. And in your life, in your faith, in your hope, as you offer spiritual sacrifices to one another and to them, let them see Christ. Come and see. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your sovereign grace, for the hope that we have, the surety we have in the chief cornerstone who is laid there by you, beside you in Zion. We look forward to the day, Lord, in which we will see him again. We look forward to the day, Lord, of meeting Andrew, of meeting Philip, 
and all the apostles and all the saints who have gone before us. And we ask you, Lord, to deal tenderly with us as we attempt to abide by these words which you have given to us and to build our house solidly upon the rock. Amen.